Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. We hope you're enjoying your holidays. We have yet another bonus episode for you. This is where we get to select one or two of the more popular episodes of the past two years. On this bonus episode, we will feature CFO Charmaine Spence Rochester of the Chester County Hospital of Pennsylvania. At the very heart of uh, this episode, at the very heart of the interview, there is in fact a leadership lesson that is rooted in family. I think it's pretty pretty special, pretty extraordinary, which led me to think that uh, this would be a nice time of year uh, to once more share Charmaine's story with all of you. Separately, I thought I'd share a quick uh, note or two on a, on a book selection. As you well know, we have our CFO bookshelf where we always ask CFOs for a their latest reading selections. Uh, One of the more popular selections that CFOs had recommended over the last year, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup by John Carreau. John is a Wall Street Journal reporter, and I think it was recommended by uh, as many as five. I I try to keep notes here, but five uh, different CFOs recommended Bad Blood. And like you, perhaps I'm catching up on some of my reading over the holidays. I just want to point out that uh, the CFO of uh, of Theranos, which is the company uh, whose history many of you perhaps already know, but it's fascinating to read about, the CFO gets fired in the prologue. So it's really uh, just sort of setting up the rest of the book. Uh, but uh, some irony there, perhaps, that CFOs select a book that begins with the firing of a leadership peer. And so... Our episode featuring CFO Charmaine Spence Rochester begins after a short message from a loyal sponsor. We'll be right back. It's a question every growing business must answer. How do you scale your organization to accommodate growth while reducing risk? With Sage Intact, you get the instant visibility into deep operational and financial details that inform decision-making when scale is top of mind. By automating error-prone manual tasks and allowing your accounting and finance team to focus on analysis of accurate information, Sage Intact provides the visibility required to confidently scale your organization. Sage Intact is the only AI CPA preferred provider of cloud financial management software. CFO of Chester County Hospital. Chester County Hospital was founded in 1892. It's a a nonprofit. It's an acute care inpatient facility in Westchester, PA. Charmaine, welcome. Thank you, Zach. Happy to be here. Wonderful to have you. I can't uh, say I don't think we've had a hospital before, so I've been looking forward to this and understanding some of the unique challenges you face at Chester County, but uh, first let's find out about you, Charvey, and what were those experiences you feel helped prepare you for a CFO role? What would those be? All right, so I'll describe my career a little bit, give you some background on on how I got here, and 
as I was reflecting on my journey, I, I likened my career to three phases or seasons. So we started off with the spring of my career. This is early on, uh, post-graduation. I went to work for KPMG Pete Marwick. It was one of the big six accounting firms at the time, so that does date me a little bit. But that was the, the beginning of the journey for me. It was a time of growth. I was learning and really setting the foundation for the rest of my professional journey. Uh, it was at KPMG that I learned how to dress and behave professionally, how to quickly assess situations and get up to speed on the job at hand, how to work hard, how to operate as part of a team, and how to really set high expectations for myself and for my team and to live up to those expectations. So it was a time of growth and learning, and it was an exciting part of the journey, and that's how my career started off. Uh, after uh, a few years in uh, learning and growth mode with KPMG, some, some different dynamics started to take shape. And for me, my personal life significantly influenced my career. I got married and happened to marry an active duty military member. So my husband was active duty in the Navy. So um, that's when things, I think, shifted into more of the summer of my career where there's a lot going on and um, it, it's exciting, but, but there's a lot. So during this time, uh, not only did I get married, we started having children, we started our family, and we were moving quite frequently. So my career followed the duty stations from my husband and every couple of years when he had to move, uh, my, my, I would be changing jobs. So during that time, I had to really learn how to be more adaptive and flexible to circumstances that were out of my control. Uh, as a military wife, it, it meant I had to learn how to be a single mom at times. I had to learn how to say goodbye and not knowing if this would be the last time I would see my husband. It's tough, and I and I have so much respect for folks who still have family members in the military, it really is a sacrifice, not just for the military member, but for their, their family members as well. But the good thing for me is uh, my, the growth that happened for me personally was really um, learning how to get more clarity around what my priorities were and learning how to set boundaries and be more deliberate in, in my decision-making making sure that the decisions I made reflected my priorities. Um, I also started redefining what I thought success was. Early on in my career, when I started with KPMG, success to me meant being on the partner track. Um, during this, this season of my career where you know I'm managing being uh, the wife of an active duty military member and a mom at the same time, success for me became knowing that my children felt happy and safe, and making sure that my husband would look forward to coming home from a deployment. So I learned a lot about myself and what was important to me during that phase of my career. So the third phase of, the third phase of my career is what I would call the, the autumn phase, which is another shift. But now it, the, the rhythm is changing as far as how I'm looking at my career. 
So my husband at this point has retired from the Navy, so I'm no longer influenced by duty stations as far as my career is concerned, and I'm an empty nester. And so I'm making some decisions around who I want to be professionally, and this is when I decided to go back to school and complete my doctorate in health administration. And um, I made the decision about what I wanted to contribute to the workforce and, you know, how do I want to spend the time that I have to give, pulling on everything I've learned so far. And it was during this time that I made the decision to move to Pennsylvania. And this is the first time that even though we've moved a lot in in the 25 years that we've been married, this is the first time we moved because I was making a career choice. So we're we're in this autumn season now where I think I can draw on everything that I've learned in the the spring and the summer and see where where things go from here. So that's a quick summary of of the journey for me. How did you uh, identify health administration? Clearly, there's an opportunity uh, there, uh, but, but what led you there? So my undergrad was in accounting, and I started off in accounting. Um, I also have a master's in business administration because I I went to work for KPMG in Florida. I went to college in D.C., so my undergrad was from Howard University. And Florida at the time required 150 hours for the CPA uh, to, to be a CPA. So I went back to school while I was working with KPMG to get those additional hours. That was my motivation at the time. I just needed 150 hours, so I needed that extra 30 hours. So I completed my master's so I I could get my CPA in Florida. When I made the decision to go after health administration, I had been in healthcare for about 10 years. So the first half of my career, I was not in healthcare at all. I worked in public accounting. Um, I worked in um, banking, uh, in education, various industries. When I started working in healthcare, I fell in love with healthcare, and I realized that I wanted to spend the rest of my career doing something related to healthcare, and I wanted to make sure that I was equipped from an education standpoint to do that. So I, I chose health administration for my doctorate. Um, I had just pursuing the doctorate is is another interesting uh, journey for me. I I have a commitment to myself to be a lifelong learner, and I knew I wanted to pursue a terminal degree at some point, and um, I just didn't know what I wanted to study. And when um, after working in healthcare for a few years, I realized that that was that was where I was being called. To serve and, and decided to pursue the doctorate in health administration university. You know, it's interesting because uh, we've had other finance leaders uh, who, in, in a similar uh, situation, become an empty nester, and it's sort of um, an interesting chapter uh, that opens uh, where uh, their career is somewhat uh, energized or gets uh, greater focus. And uh, they're now they have this uh, whatever way to describe it extra maturity uh, that that to look at the world a little differently. How are you different from uh, that person twenty years ago? So that's a great question. I, I think you learn how to be a good leader through parenting, and I know that sounds strange, but but I do think that 
as you learn to be a good parent, you really are learning to be a good leader. So for one, I think I'm a better leader having been a parent for, for the past 20-plus years. Um, the, the same skills that it takes to raise a family, I think, are, are very uh, translatable to, to leading a good team. So I think I'm a better leader um, from my parenting experience. I also think I know myself a little bit better. I Early on in my career, I'm still trying to figure out who I am. I'm still um, trying to measure myself against what I think are the, the criteria for success based on what I'm hearing from others. And I think 20 years later at this point, I'm a lot more confident in who I want to be and how I'm defining success and just being more authentic with myself and making sure that I'm um, being very deliberate in the decisions I make and recognizing that I am good enough and I and I do know enough, and it, it's all about proving to myself that I'm making a difference and less about proving to others that I've um, earned a spot at the, at the table. And let's, let's find out about uh, uh, Chester County, because you step into this CFO role with that mindset you just described. What is the kind of role you now want to have? So... I want to see myself as the strategic CFO, and and um, just my previous experience, I did have a CFO role before coming to Chester County, and it was through that experience that I realized where my strengths and interests lie, and that's why I was attracted to the role at Chester County Hospital, because I have the opportunity here to be a strategic CFO, where I'm partnering with the CEO and the senior leadership team to define the future and, and build towards the future. I am not uh, the CFO who is more interested in the technical accounting side, even though that's important and, and we, we have to make sure that that is covered. But I'm more interested in making sure that we're making good decisions for the future for the organization. And the finances play a role into that, but it's much bigger than that. I recently heard a speaker describe the CFO as the Swiss army knife of the C-suite. And I really like that analogy because I do think that the CFO needs to be multi-skilled and understand strategy, operations, culture, patient satisfaction, employee satisfaction, all the different pieces of the puzzle in running a great organization. And I felt that Chester County had had the, op the opportunity to, to be that kind of value integrator as a CFO, helping the organization uh, get to the next level. How do you, uh, and, and this is a different type of organization, again, a hospital, we haven't had one before, so um, I'm wondering if it operates a little differently when it brings a senior uh, executive into uh, this, you know, into this organization. Does it happen differently? Um, are there different people involved? What would you tell us about your experience? So I'm not so sure that the, the experience of bringing a CFO in would be very different than any other organization. Um, but I, I do think that hospitals are a special breed of organization. Healthcare is very different, I would say, based on my experience and exposure to other industries. It's probably one of the most complex because you have to be comfortable with change and you have to be comfortable um, understanding that 
uncertainty is a part of your daily operations. There, there are so many influences on healthcare right now from a regulatory standpoint and um, reimbursement and, and the dynamics, the, the patient and the physicians. There, there's so many different influencers on healthcare organization that you have to be comfortable with change and you have to be comfortable with uh, uncertainty. And I think anyone who's getting into healthcare at the executive level usually understands that and, and has um, a, a certain comfort level with dealing with that change environment, the dynamics that come with a very um, an environment that is subject to, to change outside of your control that you have to be able to react to and respond to in, you know, in, in a very agile way. So what are the, uh, the numbers that keep you up at night? What metrics do you pay close attention to daily to understand how the, the hospital is performing? So for, for a hospital, um, there, there are a couple of things that we have to look at, and the first is volume. So it, it's how many patients are we seeing? And traditionally for a hospital, your inpatient volume, how many uh, patients you see on an inpatient basis used to be a very good predictor of how well you're doing as an organization. But with the changes over the past decade or so, uh, particularly after the, the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the inpatient um, status and, and volume is becoming one of many um, key indicators as opposed to the main key indicator. Uh, hospitals have to pay attention to what's happening in their ambulatory setting um, because as healthcare is evolving, we're seeing more patients um, being cared for in a setting that is not an inpatient setting, whether it's um, in an observation status where they're in the hospital and they may be in a bed, but they're not considered an inpatient, they're they still considered outpatient being observed, or if they're getting their chemo treatments in an, in, in a, a, an outpatient uh, cancer setting as opposed to an inpatient setting. So I think for hospitals, we're having to get a better understanding of how um, our patients are flowing through the, the whole continuum of care from, you know, seeing a physician in the office all the way through any kind of treatments or therapies that happen in an outpatient setting to, to them being an inpatient setting. Surgical volume is also key for hospitals, especially um, as we're looking at the shift from inpatient to outpatient. While uh, the surgery has always been one of the I would say more profitable service lines for facilities. Again, hospitals are having to evaluate the right setting for, for surgical procedures to, to happen. Is it an inpatient procedure or an outpatient procedure? So paying attention to your inpatient volume, your surgical volume, and then what's hap happening in your ambulatory setting are all key for uh, hospitals when it comes to managing um, their their business. So, as far as the members of the finance function team, are does it include a? I would imagine it includes a controller, perhaps. It does. It does. 
there, the, the makeup of the finance team is very similar to other organizations. You have your controller, your accounting team, and your analysts and um, all the support staff that help make sure that we have we can rely on the financial information for the organization. Now, this being a nonprofit, how do you look at the world in terms of where uh, the competition is or how you uh, benchmark your, your, your operations? So the, the unique thing about healthcare is you are caring for people in, in their most vulnerable state. And so it is, you know, a little bit different. It is a, a customer service industry, um, but it, it, it's different in that people are vulnerable when they come to you for help. So for us, it's all about making sure that our patients are well taken care of and receive the best quality care in the best setting. Um, from a competitive edge, it's just important for, for hospitals and health systems to, to make sure that their, their quality is not just something they talk about, but when they get measured or compared with others in the industry, that they stand out. Uh, for example, at Chester County Hospital, we have five-star designation from CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and that's the highest rating that they give a hospital for um, for quality. We are um, LeapFrog Grade A. We are one of the top 100 hospitals in, for IBM Watson Health. We're the only IBM Watson top hospital in our county and one of only seven in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, U.S. World and News Report ranks us as fifth in the Philadelphia region and ninth in the state. So we look to um, those designations and comparisons to, to see how we're stacking up relative to our competition. Another important um, differentiator for us in a competitive sense is that we are a magnet-designated facility, and magnet is the highest and most prestigious designation for nursing excellence, and only 8% of all hospitals in the U.S. have this designation, and we're proud to be one of them. So we pride ourselves on making sure that we're taking good care of our patients, um, that they can receive the whole continuum of care. And what's special about Chester County, there are many things special about Chester County, but five years ago, Chester County became part of Penn Medicine, which is the health system of the University of, the Pennsylvania, the University of Pennsylvania, one of the top health systems in the nation, and a world-class academic medical center. And so being a part of the Penn Medicine system allows Chester County to not only take good care of our patients in the community, but should they need tertiary or quaternary care, they, they, they can seamlessly progress through the system and get that care at one of our Penn Medicine facilities in the Philadelphia region. One of our uh, signature questions for this interview, Charmaine, is to ask for uh, an aha moment, one that only a finance leader uh, can have, which is, uh, due to your unique lines of sight as a finance leader into the organization, did you ever identify an opportunity or a risk? Or what comes to mind when I ask you to think of a aha moment? Well, I'll, I'll share with you an example that made me realize that the finance leader in an organization is a, a trusted leader who, if you are maintaining your integrity and, and you're walking the walk of being good uh, steward and an ethical 
global leader that you really can make a difference in the organization. So um, I'll share the example of um, my experience a few years ago. I was working for an organization um, that had very limited dollars to invest in capital, not unlike other healthcare organizations that are facing margin compression. Uh, this, this health system was, was in that position, and so we had limited dollars available to reinvest in uh, the, the facilities for capital. And we would ask all of the leaders of the various uh, business units to provide their priorities on what they would want funded, what their capital requests were. And the process at the time was, was very competitive, where each person is really gunning for their project. And it, it, there, there was not much transparency around how different projects projects got funded, and I saw that as an opportunity to create more of a, a, um, a collaborative approach to making those types of decisions. And so I formulated what I called a capital council, and I invited each one of the business unit leaders to, to participate on the council. And they would provide to me what their priorities are for, for funding for capital. And I would do my best to get a good understanding of why this item was a priority. You know, was it because of a patient safety issue? Was it a regulatory issue? Uh, was it something that had a high potential to bring return back to the organization? And based on that information, I, I produced a priority listing of capital that should be funded. And when we all got together in the room, we would talk about these are the things that are important and put it in context of the whole region because, they, you know, we were ge geographically dispersed in our region and we were different service lines and not everybody understood why something would be important to a different service line. But by getting everybody in the room and talking about it, we would leave the room with consensus on what the top priorities were that were going to be funded during that two-month period and we did this every two months. And while everybody didn't necessarily leave the room happy, they at least left with a better appreciation for why uh, a certain request was important to their colleagues. And I think it helped build transparency and, and just a greater understanding uh, and collaboration around the leaders in the room. It's interesting. We always uh, speak to so many different companies, particularly, I guess, technology companies, about the challenge they face when it comes to hiring. Uh, but uh, it'd be interesting to learn uh, or hear uh, some of your thoughts on uh, the workforce challenges that hospitals face, given the, the span of individuals that are hired uh, by hospitals today. It would be interesting to, to understand better. Um, from the view of a finance leader, what uh, some of those challenges are? Absolutely. So, so I, I mentioned earlier that healthcare is pretty is very much a customer service industry, but it's also a clinical industry, and we have to make sure that we have adequate and qualified staff to take care of our patients. And the challenge for hospitals is that you want to make sure that you are staffed to the, the volume that is flowing through your hospital and there are peaks and, and troughs with that volume and you have to be able to flex your staff based on those peaks and troughs in your volume. 
So it, it, it's key for the finance leaders to be very engaged with our nursing leaders, for example, so that we have a good understanding of how we're going to staff our, our inpatient units, for example, and how we're going to prepare for high census, which is when we have more patients in, and what the strategy will be when census drops, because we have to, we have to keep in mind that these are qualified professionals who, you know, they have the opportunity to, to work in other hospitals, so we want them to stay engaged and committed to our facility. And, but at the same time, we have to manage to our, our patient load. So finance works very closely with clinical leaders when it comes to staffing. Um, we also have to manage turnover because in our setting where we need qualified nurses and um, clinicians to take care of our patients, when you lose quality uh, staff to, to competitors, it, it's a very um, costly loss. And so we, we have to make sure that our compensation package and benefits package and um, all the things that are important to the employees is fair and comparable to, to our competitors so we can retain our staff. We also have to make sure that we have um, a good culture and environment where folks want to stay and, and remain uh, engaged and and part of the, the community, the hospital community. It's interesting, as many times maybe as I step foot in a hospital, I've never uh, thought about where uh, the management uh, suite might be. I'm, I'm going to uh, make the assumption that it's on the premises, that it's, it's, it's within the same building. Absolutely. So on site, we have our CEO, we have a COO, which, you know, those are – typical executive positions in any organization, but we also have a chief nursing officer and we have a chief medical officer, which are unique to, to healthcare. And so along with the CFO, we make up the, the C-suite. We also have a chief strategy officer, which is not uncommon in other organizations, but the, the difference in healthcare is having that chief nursing officer and chief medical officer to help us in our decision-making and, and strategic planning for the organization. And we're all here on site. I think in most organizations, the operational leaders are on site. Um, in larger organizations, there, there may be a corporate office where the, the, the CEO for the region or for the system may not physically be located in a hospital, but I, I guarantee that they would spend time in the facilities if that were the case. Thought Leader listeners, we're about to enter not your average mentoring round. Charmaine, uh, in my opinion, hits it out of the park. You won't want to miss this. Right after these words from our sponsors. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middlemarket. 
Okay, we want to move to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and inform future finance leaders. What's exciting you today about finance and business? I think I'm, I'm excited that finance leaders in, uh, are trusted partners in any organization, and we become the, the fiduciary stewards of the organization, and it, it's a very important role given where we are, where I think just in society in general, I think there seems to be a lack of trust for those in leadership, and the finance professional is usually one who is looked to, to to maintain the ethical and moral standards of the organization. So for, for young professionals who are planning for the future, um, the finance role becomes this very dynamic role where you, you are the fiduciary steward of the organization, but you're also the strategic partner. And I mentioned before this analogy of the finance leader being like the Swiss Army knife of the C-suite. And I think that's what makes it such a special position because you touch every aspect of, uh, of the business. Um, one example I'll give in being in healthcare is I'm not sure that there are many CFOs out there who would know what the central line associated bloodstream infection is and why it would, it would be important. But in, in healthcare, as a finance leader, you have to understand certain clinical aspects of the business because our reimbursement is tied to our clinical quality, and you have to understand the language that your clinical partners in the C-suite um, are, are talking about so you can uh, support their efforts in making sure that the, the quality care that the patients receive will translate to us being uh, reimbursed appropriately from a, from a financial standpoint. I also feel like our finance leaders in the organization have this, this responsibility to be value integrators and help make sure that everybody in the organization is able to bring their best value to the table. And we, we're often seen as data stewards and um, anything that has a number associated with it, uh, folks are usually looking to the, the finance leaders and everything that we do in, in the, the current economy has numbers, whether it's your quality metrics, your um, competitive metrics. And so finance has that opportunity to be um, to bring value to the organization that they serve in. I have to say the uh, the analogy of the uh, Swiss Army knife as the uh, CFO is the Swiss Army knife for the C-suite. Uh, I, I, I've never heard that before. I, I had to Google it uh, as we were speaking here, and uh, it, it did pop up in a few places. It does appear to be the CFO. Sometimes these things get borrowed from other members of the C-suite in the uh, in the world, so that's a, that's a really interesting analogy, and uh, maybe it's been out there. I haven't heard it, um, but anyway, on to our. And I, I heard I heard it recently, and it really resonated with me because I, I think it's really a, an accurate. Analogy. It, it's a it's a terrific one, and we're we're in need of new ones. That's a, that's a that's a great one. <laughs> All right, do you have a personal habit you believe has contributed to your professional success? do, and, and I'll share, I have several, but the one I'm, I'll share is my, my gratitude journal, and I'll start by saying that 
for like most people, I am not a journaler, and I know some some folks will hear the word journal and they're already you know turning turning it off because they're not going to sit and write. So that was me. I, I was never one who would be big on journaling. But a few years ago, um, I, I went to a conference and the speaker talked about the the importance of maintaining this attitude of gratitude because as especially as leaders and as executives, it's so easy to get distracted with the the chaos and and the stress and that that comes with your role. And in order to maintain that balance, the the gratitude journal was a tool that could help. And so I. They, they gave us a free journal, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll try this because, you know, at, at the time there was a lot going on in my organization, and the stress level was really high, and I needed to make sure that I maintained a, a certain level of groundedness. And so I started the gratitude journal, and, and the rules are every evening at the end of the day, um, and, and I usually do this right before bed. I reflect on the day and I write down three things that I'm grateful for. No more, no less. Three things. And you know, sometimes it's it's very simple things like a warm shower or a sunny day. And then at other times it's more profound, um, like just reflecting on the day my daughter completed boot camp and how grateful I was that she made it through. So the the and I've kept with this practice because I realize that if the last thing I think about before I go to bed are the things I'm grateful for, I would wake up a lot more optimistic the next day. And it, I'm also conscious now throughout the day trying to think of things that I can write in my journal, in my gratitude journal that evening. So I'm looking for the good things. And I think when you look for the good and the positive, you end up finding more of them. And that has been my experience. Uh, and then recently, I added something else. I added a twist to that. So recently, in my in my daily journaling, I'm adding something I learned that day because I I have a personal commitment to continuous learning. And again, it, it, to to fulfill that commitment, I realized that I didn't want to get into my 80s and 90s and and miss the opportunity because. I think, you know, I, I already know everything. I know I don't know everything. I know I'm learning every day. And so I, I started um, writing something in my journal new that I learned that day. And sometimes it's a, it's a random fact, like the day I learned that Pennsylvania Hospital was the first hospital in the nation. I wrote that in my, you know, for my learning that day. And sometimes it's, it's a life lesson. Um, uh, whether it's a life lesson from parenting or or from leadership, I you know I recently was reflecting on the difference in being a parent of adults versus being a parent who's raising children who depend on you to help make sure that they have boundaries and and make good decisions. So it it varies. There there the the only rules I have for myself with this daily practice is only three things for the gratitude journal. I can't just write one and I can't write ten, only three. And then one thing that I learned. And if I if I come to the end of the day and I can't figure out something that I learned, then I will, you know, pull out my nook and 
look at one of the books that I have and, and spend a, a few minutes reading and see if I can glean something because I really want to make sure I can end the day saying that I learned something new. I, I keep on uh, – I often jot down notes as we're uh, speaking to different leaders, and um, I, I wrote down the word discipline several times. Only, And it's interesting that um, – uh, we've reflected before how uh, a number of our finance leaders' recent interviews actually were uh, from military backgrounds. I wouldn't describe yours as a military background, but you're a military family where discipline obviously plays uh, an important under overriding theme. Uh, and, and you mentioned your daughters in boot camp. People would describe you clearly as a disciplined person. Am I correct? Yeah. And that's something you've had from a very uh, from your start, I would imagine as well. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Do you and, want and, me to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, because um, it is the uh, a, a primary characteristic of finance leaders, and very often it's from the start. At the same time, the people around you obviously are disciplined as well, and I don't know if they got it from mom or uh, your family members are clearly of the same mind, I would say. Could you could you reflect a little on that? Absolutely. So I, I do think of myself as a disciplined person, and I think it's because I learned early on that if, if I didn't have discipline, I wouldn't be able to accomplish my goals. And I, I was born in Jamaica. I grew up there. Uh, my family came to the States when I was 16. My mom was a nurse, and she was recruited to work in a hospital in, in rural Texas where they were having a hard time recruiting nurses, and that's how we ended up. So I guess my career in healthcare started way before I actually started working in healthcare because my, my mom was a nurse. But um, just growing up in, in a developing country, let's, let's call it that, and, and having limited um, opportunities and realizing that very few people make it to college, very few people are successful, and I, I guess I'm also a driven person because I, I knew that I wanted more for my life than just getting by, and I so very early on I wanted to be um, the hardest working. If I didn't, you know, if I wasn't first in my class, I certainly was going to be the hardest working student in my class because I had a vision for myself that was much bigger than where I was. And so um, that's, that's where this, this discipline and, and this focus started for me, was this coming, you know, growing up with limited opportunities and, and realizing that I had to be um, a, a head above the rest if I wanted any shot at getting something better for myself. And then... Coming to, to the United States as, as an immigrant, and um, I'll tell you the story of how I lost my accent because when I came, I was 16. Uh, I went to 12th grade. I already graduated from high school back home, but I went to the 12th grade, and, it, you know, for the first week that I was in school, I had to repeat everything like 10 times. I guess the Jamaican accent was a little bit tough for my, my classmates to understand. And so very quickly I adapted and started talking away, you know, just like the folks around me so they would understand what, what I was saying. And I guess that's just an example of having to adapt and just having that commitment that, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I need to do so that I can be successful and I can have the support that I need. So it started there. 
Um, and then I think just being in a military family helps as well. So of our family of five, I'm the only civilian. Um, my husband retired from the Navy. He served in the Navy for 21 years. Um, and all three of our children are also in the service. Um, our oldest daughter graduated from the United States Air Force Academy last May. She's a second lieutenant. And our other two children, my son and my younger daughter, are also at the Air Force Academy. So um, as a military family, when, when, you're, when you're moving around and, and you're, you're having to adapt to change, having that discipline really does help. It, it, you know, it, it helps create consistency in the family, especially for children as they're growing up. You have to have that consistency to help them feel grounded when, when they're having to move around because of the military. And then just keeping that focus around there is a goal, and if you want to succeed, you have to be a, a disciplined person to do it. So um, I think I just growing up and then the experiences I've had since being here um, and then being in a family of all military really has reinforced this, the, the importance of discipline. Wow, uh, wonderful uh, uh, family unit. Uh, <laughs> don't think I've uh, come across one quite like that. That is a, a wonderful uh, story. Thank you. Um, very interested in finding out uh, what books you believe have uh, influenced your thinking or what would you recommend really uh, to this audience? Okay, so I'll, I'll start off with a recommendation from anything from John Maxwell. I, I think John Maxwell has insights and inspirations that help, help you decide what kind of leader you want to be and how to take steps towards being that kind of leader. Uh, I recently read um, from his book, The 17 Essential Qualities of a Team, uh, the three ongoing cycles in the life of a person who's committed to learning and improving. Um, he talked about preparation. You have to plan to learn, contemplation, um, you know, making sure that you have time for self-reflection so you can learn and grow from that, and then application, doing and putting into practice what you learn. So I usually go to John Maxwell when I, when I have a, a short amount of time, but I, I know that I want to read something that will help me grow as a leader. Uh, the other book that I'm currently reading is a book by Anne Dunwoody, and it's called A Higher Standard. And this might not surprise you, given what I've shared so far about the military influence on my family, but she was the first female four-star general. And I was drawn to her book because being, you know, the only civilian in, in a military family, I've been so very impressed with what I've seen in leadership, not just from my husband, who was enlisted and rose through the ranks, and so he was a leader for other enlisted, but he also had leaders, and we would have conversations about leaders that were doing it well and those who weren't doing it so well. Um, and then I have, having had three children at the Air Force Academy, I you know, have been just very impressed with how much leadership training is emphasized. And, you know, what I've, what I've seen is with the military, good leadership means taking care of your people. And so I was drawn to Anne Dunwoody's book because I wanted to see what insights she had not just as a military leader, but as a female who was in um, a field that was dominated by males, and, and how did she get to that point of being the first uh, female four-star general? So I, 
I've learned a few things. She has a book. She, one of the chapters in her book is on courage, and it starts with a quote, do the right thing for the right reason. And I really, um, th there was so much that I gleaned from that chapter because it really does take courage to be a leader. And she gave examples of leaders who had the courage to go against the status quo, to fight prejudice and bias, and it made all the difference in the world to the, the soldiers and the people who were under their command. Uh, she talked about leaders needing to make tough calls every day, which is true whether you're a four-star general or a CFO. And uh, she also made a comment that if you compromise your integrity and principles on the small things, it becomes easier to make bad choices on the big issues. And I, I think that's just a very important life lesson to understand. Um, and again, very relatable for, for a CFO because you have a fiduciary trust and responsibility. And if you start compromising on the small things, it makes it very easy to do it on, on the bigger issues. Well, thank you. Well, thank you uh, for some very thoughtful choices. And I, I have already asked several extra questions, so our time has already expired. So I'm going to jump to our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? So th there are two things that are high on the priority list for me. So being new in my role here at Penn Medicine Chester County Hospital, I'm still in the process of building a finance team. So my top priority over the next 12 months is to have a solid team in place with the right team members, making sure that we have role clarity and, and a strong vision for the team moving forward. And I'm actually reading a book that it's, it's an older book called Team Reconstruction, Building a High-Performance Work Group by uh, Pritchard and Round. And there's some really good insights in there that, that I'm finding very useful as I'm doing the, the hard work of restructuring the finance team. Um, from a bigger perspective, from a C-suite perspective, the, the other priority for me this year is helping our organization execute on a strategic plan that we recently completed. We're 18 months away from opening a new wing of the hospital, which will have 99 new inpatient rooms and 15 state-of-the-art operating rooms. And we have to manage through our current capacity constraints, um, mitigating the impact of this construction, uh, this ongoing construction on, on our patient flow, and being ready to transition seamlessly into the new platform when it opens. So. Um, that that will definitely be an area of focus for me in the next few months. Charmaine Spence, Rochester, thank you for joining us on CFO Thank you, it was a pleasure. Thought Leader listeners, don't forget to visit CFOThoughtLeader.com and opt in to our weekly e-newsletter where we feature our latest episodes upon release. Just opt in. It's free. You'll never miss an episode again at CFOThoughtLeader.com.